if a person is walking through the mat and they kind of feel like they have a bead on art history, they know who Michelangelo was. They're not so open to, you know, seeing a guy like me standing in a broken down blue suit and just kind of having a conversation about like, what is this real? Is this, this stuff is really Egyptian? Hello and a very warm welcome to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack. Today we're going to fence with some of the larger, more difficult to quantify considerations in life. I refer, of course, to the arts and humanities. Should we care about the past and what good are the arts? We've got two wonderful guests with us today. Martin Puckner, a Harvard humanities professor, has written a brand new book, Culture, the story of us from cave art to K-pop. And Patrick Bringley worked as a museum guard at the Museum of Metropolitan Art in New York for 10 years before leaving to write a book about his experiences. The book is called All the Beauty in the World. So Martin, let's start with you first. For centuries, you say, humanity has sought to understand and transmit to future generations, not just the know-how, but the know-why, puzzling the meaning and purpose of existence through art, religion, architecture, and philosophy. So why did you write the book, and why is this pursuit of understanding so essential that we shouldn't be safeguarding it? Thanks for asking this question. It's sort of embarrassing because I think I started this book because even though I had been you know, teaching arts and humanities for decades, really, I had never really asked myself the sort of fundamental question, namely, what is culture and how does it work? I think this has to do with specialization and that if you're in the arts, you're already sort of in this world and you take it for granted. You, you, you assume that people know what it is and, and value it. And I think it's because of the fact that now culture is so contested, that there seems to be this, uh, you know, falling enrollments and so on and so forth, that I somehow realized in order to actually articulate why we need culture, I need to understand how culture works. And so I, this is what I said, from the goal I set for myself. And, and I knew that I wanted it to be a global story. I didn't want to retell the old Western art story. I also felt like I needed to start sort of at the beginning. So cave art, and I wanted it to be sort of immersive, compelling episodes. But from them, I wanted to this question, how does culture work actually? How does it evolve to emerge? And so that there are a couple of through lines that I took away at the end of the process. I sort of start with this idea that culture is not natural, that you know, we don't pass it on through our DNA. So we need storage medium in institutions like caves, like museums to do that. I started to become very clear to me, especially once you take this long view, that when it comes to art, we are all latecomers. I think there's much too much emphasis on originality and firsts, uh, where you're always confronted with these somewhat mysterious works from the distant past. And so we need to, that becomes a driver of culture. The most important takeaway for me, perhaps, is that cultures thrive by borrowing. If you look at any given tradition, you see that it is made cobbled together from fragments of, of other traditions. And there are many you know, examples of that in the book. And I think there's a corollary to that, namely that 
ultimately culture can't be owned by any single person or group. Now, I know that in today's sort of restitution debate and worries about cultural appropriation, there is this language of art and culture as property. And I can see how in certain contexts that might be important. But ultimately, I feel like if you look at how cultures evolve, and I'm talking about really all of them, uh, you can see that borrowing is just hugely important and that a sense of ownership tends to shut down possibility. And I think the, the sort of last takeaway point I took from that sort of global deep history of, of art course that I set for myself is, is a certain attitude of humility that many of the heroes in the books are translators, preservers, people who travel, who immerse themselves in foreign cultures, and they all seek this sort of experience of difference. They, they recognize that these artworks from the distant past or from other cultures they engage with challenge their own values in, in some important way. And that's what they valued. And I think also because, and some are explicit about it, they all aware, and I'm talking about you know, translators working in the Baghdad House of Wisdom in, in the Middle Ages, who are interested in Greek manuscripts, even though you know, they were not Islamic or medieval nuns and monks cherishing pre-Christian manuscripts, even though they're not Christian and, and many figures like that. I think they all realize that their own values will also change and they hope that the future would not judge them too harshly. And, and I think that's the kind of attitude they also took towards the past. And that strikes me as an important thing to take away. So those are sort of some of the through lines in a way I try to tease out in order to sort of have a better answer for myself and you know, maybe for students, how culture, if you take that bird's eye perspective, how does culture actually work and how does it evolve and what are the mechanisms? Is this just about money, do you think? Students might want to study these nice areas in the liberal arts, but they're not sure they can get a job when they graduate. Is it just as simple as that? I'm not sure. I think this is a complex phenomenon that has many different factors. I think that, of course, students are worried about jobs, and I think it would be you know, arrogant and idiotic to chide them for it. But at the same time, I, I'm not sure it's just about money. First of all, you know, these studies, especially the longer-term studies, show that actually humanities majors are not doing too badly, especially in the long run. I'm actually always surprised that they're just a little below engineers and so on and so forth. I would have expected a much bigger difference. And maybe we are not good enough communicating that. But I actually think that especially this generation of students, they're actually not, the vibe I get from them is not that it's just about money. They're very value-oriented. They want to work for companies that have the same values. They, many of them want to be activists. So I don't get the sense that it's just about money, which means that actually this easy story we in the humanities have been telling ourselves, maybe, oh, these students are just worried about jobs. This may not be true, may not describe the full picture. It means that maybe we haven't been very good or very effective in communicating what's exciting about culture and the arts and humanities and that we need to get better at it. And that's at least the conclusion I draw for myself because I can't change the job market, but you know, in a tiny little way, I can change you know, how I teach. And so this is sort of the conclusion I 
you know came to and and this is why I in some sense I embarked on this on this project to to have a better and more exciting story about the arts for students to give them sort of the big picture that we in the humanities rarely provide that we always assume that students already know that basic stuff or that they already care and I think that that we can't necessarily assume that. So I think we have to become, I think we in the humanities are not always our own best advocates. And I've been trying to teach myself to become maybe a little better at it. So isn't there a kind of commonality of just searching for meaning in the whole humanities thing? If we're looking I, at cultures. I do think that essentially, if you look at the arts and as I did sort of the deep history of art, you I think what you get when you take a step back is sort of a history of, you know, a snapshot of the human species in its quest for meaning and its attempt. And, you know, I start with the wonderful Jovey cave where you really feel like these humans who worked on this cave for thousands of years in incredible continuity, almost 200 generations, that they somehow expressed, it was very important, you know, devoting enormous resources to expressing and preserving images that, clearly express their try to figure out their place in the universe where they come from how they relate to other species the world outside the caves there are some you know more realistic representations of of animals they would hunt but also imaginary beings i mean it's clearly an incredible space they never lived there they just went there generation after generation to figure this thing out this intergenerational work and that for me becomes sort of the it's my first chapter, and that for me sets the tone for the rest of the book. So yes, I, I agree with that. And it's it's been fascinating for me to see putting these different pieces, episodes from different parts of the world, different periods together and see what kind of story of humans emerges from that. And it's it, I find it very moving. You're listening to Why Do We Need the Humanities with Martin Puckner, author of Culture, The Story of Us from Cave Art to K-Pop, in conversation with Patrick Bringley, ex-museum guard at the Met and author of All the Beauty in the World. Well, speaking of ancient cave art being a, a museum of sorts for a collection, I'm going to move over now to Patrick. So in brief, Patrick, this is an amazing story, but um, you changed places in a way in life. Um, you left the New Yorker to take a job as a museum guard at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and you were there for 10 years. And during that time, you were collecting your experiences. And then at the time, at the end of it, you decided to write a book, which is delightful. So tell us a little bit about how that came to pass. So, yeah, right out of college, I got this job at the New Yorker magazine, not writing, but there are events department. But of course, you know, I was 21 years old and I felt like I was on top of the world. I was in a skyscraper at 42nd Street and Broadway. And that's a kind of dangerous way to be thinking because of course, in fact, I knew nothing about the world. And in fact, I, you know, had never written a word of substance or really even kind of have thought a word of substance yet. But at the New Yorker, you know, of course, I wanted to try to write at first in this sort of sophisticated, urbane style about the arts that the New Yorker is famous for, but I couldn't do it. And that's not really kind of how my mind works anyway. And while I was working there, my 
my brother got ill, um, very ill, you know, a sort of cancer that it was clear at some point he wasn't going to beat. And that meant that I spent much of, you know, two years in hospital rooms and sitting by a bedside. And, you know, you notice when you do things like that, that momentous things are kind of happening in this quiet little room right here that in some ways put to shame our attempts to be thinking sophisticated little thoughts in a talk of the town piece for the New Yorker or something like that. And I found it very difficult to sort of leave that world and just go back to an office job where you're thinking about nonsense and trying to climb a corporate ladder and thinking about office politics or whatever the case may be. And I wanted to be someplace where I could just keep my hands empty and have my head up and be thinking my own thoughts kind of on my own time in this beautiful place that in some ways the old master galleries of the Met especially kind of mirror that atmosphere of a quiet little hospital room where there's something very sad but very beautiful and very raw and very stripped down and kind of human and essential and I wanted to kind of contemplate these things and I think at the Met those things are are very near and very um you can have an intimate relationship with them so there's lots of lots of stuff in the book there's observation there's actually an amazing map of the Met and you take us around all the various galleries I think there's 500 guards work there at various shifts um half of whom I think are immigrants which is another amazing thing so you say right early on, too many visitors think of the Met as a museum of art history where they should learn about art rather than from it. What did you mean by that? Yes, I think that's exactly right. I think if so, most of the artists who produced the altar pieces at the Met or, you know, the Egyptian statues or something would find it very peculiar that we are studying these things in some discipline called art history. And we're very interested in schools and styles and techniques and kind of looking at it from an arm's length. Because of course, the person who painted an altarpiece of a lamentation where Christ is in his mother's arms or something like that, imagined that we would be thinking about that. And they imagined we'd be thinking about our own mortality and we would be thinking about something about the you know, spiritual dimensions of that story, but also the mystery of the world and the poignancy of human existence and all of these bigger questions. And I think no matter where you wander in the Met, you realize that this is art that's being made by human beings, just like you and I are human beings. And they kind of have you know, hearts and minds just like we do in, in large part. And they are engaging with questions that are still very much alive about, you know, the mystery of why, why this is all here and why it's so beautiful and why it's so full and why it's so diverse and what to make of the fact that we just live this short span on earth and we're going to die and what is beautiful and what is joyous and what is sad. And that's what we can do at the Met. We can engage on direct terms with what, as Martin said, all of these peoples of the past have been also meaning making. And we can make our own meaning in a museum, but we can see what others have done with it, both in a spirit of humility, that sort of standing back and taking it all in and feeling small in this great big place, 
But then at some point too, sort of turning a switch and saying, well, what do, what do I think of this stuff and, and engage with it as well. That's always what I, I sort of try to get people to do. There's two things going on here in the in the book. There's there's all this knowledge that obviously you've accumulated yourself over the course of 10 years being there. And you talk about the ebullient subculture of the museum guards. And then you also eavesdrop on conversations. So you're kind of living between these two worlds in some ways, which I found fascinating. The people who become guards at the Met is just everybody. It's just everybody. And because so many of them are immigrants, they've had all different lives and all different backgrounds. And there are different styles of human being in addition to kind of having its, its diversity sort of along every axis. And you learn so much from those people. You learn about their home countries, but you also learn about New York. You know, one of this guard, Boris, he's an artist. A ton of the guards are artists. He's very talented, oil painter. And he came to New York in the 1970s. And for decades, he painted flush tones on department store mannequins. Because just like the ancient Greeks used to have their white statues painted to look realistic, that's what department stores like to do. And then he did that for decades. And that fell out of fashion. And he lost his job. And he's standing on post talking to me. So you just learn so much about the world, which makes sense because you're in a great world museum. And it's sort of what's inspiring about the guards, too, is they all, you know, they show up to work and they have perfect freedom to think their own thoughts and kind of be whoever they are. If they were a curator, there's something that's sort of channeling their mind into a particular path because they have a certain professional responsibility to uh, they belong to a certain academic tradition. They they're not going to just have a screwball opinion like, you know, Rembrandt's for the birds or something. But as a guard, you can have any opinion you want. And it creates different levels of engagement with the art that are that are going on. And I felt like it also sort of inspired me to just kind of stand in my own shoes and be who I am and, and sort of look at the art face to face, mano a mano. And then, and then also you get visitors from all over the world coming in. And many of these visitors, you know, maybe they've not come, been to the Met before. Maybe they've never been to a big art museum at all before or even a big city before. So, you know, they're asking you for the Mona Lisa and they're asking you for the dinosaurs and the Constitution and all of those things. And I always loved those people. I loved overhearing conversations and also speaking with people that are just all spun around because I think the sort of, they're the ones with their eyes widest. Often if a person is walking through the mat and they kind of feel like they have a bead on art history, they know who Michelangelo was, they know, then they're not necessarily so open at just having new stories just poured into their skull in this place, or they're not so open to, you know, seeing a guy like me standing in a, you know, broken down blue suit and just kind of having a conversation about like, what? is this real? Is this, this stuff is really Egyptian? And those people, I think, kind of have the right attitude in a way, because we all should feel spun around in a place like the Mets. And, you know, Martin's book has all of these stories of all of these cultures from all these tens of thousands of years. And you're like, you know, just my God, none of us can become an expert on more than a tiny, tiny fraction of it. And most people who enter the Met are not interested in becoming experts at all. They're interested in bopping around in all of these different places and having experiences that somehow open 
their eyes a little wider. Well, I have to say, you don't strike me as the average museum guard. Uh, I go to museums pretty regularly, and most people, I might have gotten this wrong, don't really want to engage. I've had a few conversations with the, the guards. You must be quite unusual because there's a point at which in the book you say you go up to this group of teenagers. I think they've got an assignment and they're not quite sure what they're doing. And you end up taking them kind of like on this private tour. <laughs> Did you see that as part of your function? I mean, you clearly were changing lives. I would say there are all kinds of museum guards. So there are museum guards that are way chattier than me at the Met. Because again, there's more than 500 people. So it just depends. And it's interesting. You kind of determine just by the way you hold yourself and sort of set your face, whether people talk to you or not. If you kind of have, if you're very preoccupied, people don't talk to you. If you're kind of out there, people do talk to you. And yeah, those teenage girls, they had a very good assignment, actually, an assignment that I think is commendable for whoever their teacher was, which the teacher had said, do you think that the Greek gods, or sorry, that the Greeks believed in their gods? Say why or why not discussing two works of art. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting because that makes you think, you know, did they believe that there was actually a guy Zeus, you know, sitting on a mountain, or was it kind of a metaphor, or what was the deal? And I was very happy to kind of help talk them through that that assignment because I think, as far as humanity's assignment goes, that's that's quite a good one. So, let, just about your own knowledge now, uh, uh, in terms of you had, I guess, a liberal arts education. I did, yeah. I went to NYU, uh, what's called the Gallatin School, where they let you just take classes in all sorts of departments. So I took a little art history, but mostly I did English and I did a little religious um, and I did some classics and uh, a, a humanities potpourri for sure. What is it that's the chief problem from your perspective about the humanities, the way that it's being taught and presented and why more people aren't signing up in your view? Yes, I, I took some grad school classes as well. And I think across the humanities, you have a problem in that the professors are all PhDs in their subjects, and they have a certain academic cast of mind, and they assume that others are like them, and they sort of are trying to mold future PhDs often. They're trying to get you to think in about historiography and, you know, make sure you have the footnotes right and to have uh, your critical sort of awareness of what's happening in the field. Whereas the reality is that most people who are taking humanities courses, they might not have that cast of mind at all. They might just want to learn about, you know, the Second World War. They might want to, you know, learn if they start in an art history course, they want to look at the beautiful cathedrals and temples and mosques that have been created over the course of the, the world and sort of sample the majesty of all that and kind of consider what does that mean and how do all these cultures relate to one another and not necessarily find some specialization and then spend five to seven years of their life you know drilling down into some particular you know tradition and in my view the especially the undergraduate humanities and liberal arts should just have the door wide open to the, a person with that cast of mind, a person that, you know, they should go home to their fellows at the dorm and say, you know, my, what I do is awesome because I am an art history major. I go and I sit down in a darkened room 
beautiful things are on the screen. We learn about those beautiful things and it's, it's nourishing. It sort of makes me feel more alive. It makes me feel more positive about this earth that we live on. And then my professor lets me find some way that I engage in that stuff, lets me find something that I'm interested in about it. And maybe it's a creative project. Maybe it's, you know, maybe I'm writing some grand sweep of an essay that is perhaps far too grandiose to uh, that a 19 year old shouldn't maybe isn't qualified to write, but they need to write those things. Because I can tell you when I was a 19 year old, I was very interested in, you know, writing some essay like this is what, you know, Paradise Lost has to say about, you know, the nature of God and man, you know, like that sort of level of engagement is very important, I think, especially to young people, as opposed to um, just nope, you know, let's let's drill down into to, um, you know, how Milton was uh, influenced by such and such. I think you raise a great point there that um, I just saw there was an an experiment that I think it's in some Scandinavian country they've just started where they're giving people that have depression 10 free museum passes. And they interviewed this woman that was just walking around. She's one of the recipients, young woman. And she, and the reporter said, why are you here? And she said, this space makes me happy. It's as simple as that. And it was such a profound and simple answer. You're pretty much saying the same thing. Is there any further need to reference anything if you're in a space like that? That in itself is nurturing on so many levels. So back to you now, Martin. What, what's your retort to that critique about how the humanities are being pumped out? Oh, I 100% agree with everything Patrick has said so beautifully. I mean, I think I used to be like one of Patrick's professors uh, and, you know, take all of this for granted and think about the specialization. I really love teaching grad students. And then, you know, I slowly, much too belatedly, realized that that's just the wrong approach. So I, I had to sort of re-educate myself and retool what I do and how I approach things, both my teaching and writing. So no, I mean, I, I really agree 100% that it's not about producing the next generation of specialists, that I think knowledge matters. And there, it's important to convey that, you know, there are so many things to find out about these objects. So this is not anti-knowledge. And I should also say that on some level, the kind of book I just wrote couldn't have been written without some specialists. It's also not that professors shouldn't, you know, specialize at all. On the contrary, it made me actually much more grateful for the work of, of specialists. But when it comes to teaching the humanities and communicating why they matter, because you know, enrollments isn't just students, you know, not liking their humanities class. It's their it's their parents, it's their uncles, it's their guidance counselors, it's what they pick up from culture more generally. So those are the people you have to, to convince. And I think we have to you know, get much better doing it very clearly. And I think Patrick, both his book itself is a beautiful example of doing that and the way he you described that. I think it I couldn't agree more. Well, I, I should reiterate what Martin says. I, I don't have anything against specialists. I mean, of course, specialists are very important. And I don't begrudge anyone who spends, you know, 20 years of their life trying to figure out 
you know, who Velasquez's assistants are, are or something like that's important. That has value too. what the curators have value. I, I think what we're both saying is that there's only so many people who have that kind of mind and for the humanities to thrive, there needs to be larger consideration that many people are generalists. Many people are interested in amateurs. Many people are, you know, interested in using this stuff as, as sort of fuel for something else they're doing and that we should kind of open the door for all those things. So I want to thank Martin Puckner, author of Culture, the story of us from cave art to K-pop, in conversation with Patrick Bringley, ex-museum guard at the Met and author of All the Beauty in the World. Cambridge Forum is made possible by the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Lull Institute, the Mass Cultural Council, Cambridge Community Foundation, and you. You can step up and donate via the website, cambridgeforum.org. Thanks everybody for joining us today and enriching the discussion. And I hope to see you all soon.